and she had paid thirty-seven shillings for the chair. Only yesterday, Bunting had tried to find a purchaser for it. But the man who had come to look at it, guessing their cruel necessities, had only offered them twelve shillings and sixpence for it. So for the present they were keeping their armchair. But man and woman want something more than mere material comfort, much as that is valued by the Buntings of this world. So on the walls of the sitting-room hung, neatly framed, if now rather faded, photographs. Photographs of Mr. and Mrs. Bunting's various former employers, and of the pretty country houses in which they had separately lived during the long years they had spent in a not unhappy servitude. But appearances were not only deceitful, they were more than usually deceitful with regard to these unfortunate people. In spite of their good furniture, that substantial outward sign of respectability which is the last thing which wise folk who fall into trouble try to dispose of, they were almost at the end of their tether. Already they had learnt to go hungry, and they were beginning to learn to go cold. Tobacco, the last thing the sober man foregoes among his comforts, had been given up some time ago by Bunting. And even Mrs. Bunting, prim, prudent, careful woman as she was in her way, had realized what this must mean to him. So well indeed had she understood that some days back she had crept out and bought him a packet of Virginia. Bunting had been touched, touched as he had not been for years by any woman's thought and love for him. Painful tears had forced themselves into his eyes, and husband and wife had both felt, in their odd, unemotional way, moved to the heart. Fortunately, he never guessed, how could he have guessed, with his slow, normal, rather dull mind, that his poor Ellen had since, more than once, bitterly regretted that fourpence halfpenny, For they were now very near the soundless depths which divide those who dwell on the safe tableland of security, those, that is, who are sure of making a respectable, if not a happy living, and the submerged multitude who, through some lack in themselves, or owing to the conditions under which our strange civilization has become organized, struggle rudderless, till they die in workhouse, hospital, or prison. Had the Buntings been in a class lower than their own, had they belonged to the great company of human beings technically known to so many of us as the poor, there would have been friendly neighbors ready to help them. And the same would have been the case had they belonged to the class of smug, well-meaning, if unimaginative folk whom they had spent so much of their lives in serving. There was only one person in the world who might possibly be brought to help them. That was an aunt of Bunting's first wife. With this woman, the widow of a man who had been well-to-do, lived Daisy, Bunting's only child by his first wife. And during the last long two days, he had been trying to make up his mind to write to the old lady, and that, though he suspected that she would almost certainly retort with a cruel, sharp rebuff. As to their few acquaintances, former fellow-servants, and so on, they had gradually fallen out of touch with them. There was but one friend who often came to see them in their deep trouble. This was a young fellow named Chandler, under whose grandfather Bunting had been footman years and years ago. Joe Chandler had never gone into service. He was attached to the police. In fact, not to put too fine a point upon it, young Chandler was a detective.
When they had first taken the house, which had brought them, so they both thought, such bad luck, Bunting had encouraged the young chap to come often, for his tales were well worth listening to, quite exciting at times. But now, poor Bunting didn't want to hear that sort of stories. Stories of people being cleverly nabbed, or stupidly allowed to escape the fate they always, from Chandler's point of view, richly deserved. But Joe still came very faithfully, once or twice a week, so timing his calls that neither host nor hostess need press food upon him. Nay, more, he had done that which showed him to have a good and feeling heart. He had offered his father's old acquaintance a loan, and Bunting, at last, had taken thirty shillings. Very little of that money now remained. Bunting still could jingle a few coppers in his pocket, and Mrs. Bunting had two shillings ninepence. That and the rent they would have to pay in five weeks was all they had left. Everything of the light, portable sort that would fetch money had been sold. Mrs. Bunting had a fierce horror of the pawn shop. She had never put her feet in such a place, and she declared she never would. She would rather starve first. But she had said nothing when there had occurred the gradual disappearance of various little possessions she knew that Bunting valued, notably of the old-fashioned gold watch-chain which had been given to him after the death of his first master, a master he had nursed faithfully and kindly through a long and terrible illness. There had also vanished a twisted gold tie-pin and a large mourning ring, both gifts of former employers. When people are living near that deep pit which divides the secure from the insecure, when they see themselves creeping closer and closer to its dread edge, they are apt, however loquacious by nature, to fall into long silences. Bunting had always been a talker, but now he talked no more. Neither did Mrs. Bunting, but then she had always been a silent woman— and that was perhaps one reason why Bunting had felt drawn to her from the very first moment he had seen her. It had fallen out in this way. A lady had just engaged him as butler, and he had been shown by the man whose place he was to take into the dining room. There, to use his own expression, he had discovered Ellen Green, carefully pouring out the glass of port wine which her then mistress always drank at eleven-thirty every morning. And as he, the new butler, had seen her engaged in this task, as he had watched her carefully stopper the decanter and put it back into the old wine-cooler, he had said to himself, That is the woman for me. But now, her stillness, her... her dumbness, had got on the unfortunate man's nerves. He no longer felt like going into the various little shops close by, patronized by him in more prosperous days, and Mrs. Bunting also went afield to make the slender purchases which still had to be made every day or two if they were to be saved from actually starving to death. Suddenly, across the stillness of the dark November evening, there came the muffled sounds of hurrying feet and of loud, shrill shouting outside, boys crying the late afternoon editions of the evening papers. Bunting turned uneasily in his chair. The giving up of the daily paper had been, after his tobacco, his bitterest deprivation. And the paper was an older habit than the tobacco, for servants are great readers of newspapers. 
As the shouts came through the closed windows and the thick damask curtains, Bunting felt a sudden sense of mind hunger fall upon him. It was a shame, a damned shame, that he shouldn't know what was happening in the world outside. Only criminals are kept from hearing news of what is going on beyond their prison walls. And those shouts, those hoarse, sharp cries, must portend that something really exciting had happened, something warranted to make a man forget for the moment his own intimate, gnawing troubles. He got up and, going towards the nearest window, strained his ears to listen. There fell on them, emerging now and again from the confused babble of hoarse shouts, the one clear word, murder. Slowly Bunting's brain pieced the loud, indistinct cries into some sort of connected order. Yes, that was it. Horrible murder, murder at St. Pancras! Bunting remembered vaguely another murder which had been committed near St. Pancras that of an old lady by her servant-maid. It had happened a great many years ago, but was still vividly remembered as of special and natural interest among the class to which he had belonged. The newsboys, for there were more than one of them, a rather unusual thing in the Marylebone Road, were coming nearer and nearer. Now they had adopted another cry, but he could not quite catch what they were crying. They were still shouting hoarsely, excitedly, but he could only hear a word or two now and then. Suddenly, The Avenger! The Avenger at his work again! broke on his ear. During the last fortnight, four very curious and brutal murders had been committed in London, and within a comparatively small area. The first had aroused no special interest. Even the second had only been awarded in the paper Bunting was still then taking in quite a small paragraph. Then had come the third, and with that...